0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be here. We are finishing our series on the reason for God, uh, trying to address some of the struggles a lot of people, especially in our culture in the last, oh, couple decades, are struggling with more than ever before. And... um, it's, it's kind of fun to sum it up today. I look forward to um, how grace changes everything as well. But before we get, begin, let's pray. Lord God, this is your day and we are yours. And Lord, I thank you for everyone who is here this morning and how you've brought us together. We pray that now, Holy Spirit, you'd work through your word in such a way that you would, um, well, help us, Lord, to believe a little more. Um, but to see you more clearly and understand your love for us in the midst of doubts and questions and struggles. So, Lord, uh, bring your healing presence to bear, your good news for each of us. Be present. And be present at all the gospel churches in our area. We thank you so much that we are not alone by any means. You have blessed us with many Christian churches in Estero and Bonita Springs and Fort Myers that are all following you and uh, in different expressions, and so, bl- Lord, bless their worship and create a movement here in this, this area, Lord, a movement of your kingdom that goes well beyond thrive and well beyond what we even anticipate or expect. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you can follow along with the sermon notes on the Bible app, and in it, you'll also find our text today. It's going to be um, from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting with verse 24, Okay? Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. This was right after the resurrection. And, uh, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So like I said at the beginning today we come to the conclusion of our sermon series and why did we even do this sermon series I'm going to remind you again you might be tired of that. But we did this sermon series because there are legitimate questions people have and struggles they have with believing in God in this day and age. Every culture in every time period has different cultural assumptions. They just assume this is the way it is, this is the way it, and, and, and those assumptions make Christianity seem implausible. Like, you, how can you believe that? You know, how easy is it to believe? It seems impossible. And you saw some of those individuals in that bumper video right before this sermon who struggle with some of those things. How do we address those? But it's not just people who don't believe in God. It's also for us who do. We struggle with these things. And so we're coming to the last in our series. And the question we're asking today is, what do I do with my doubts? How can I be sure? One of my favorite animated movies is Shrek. <laughs> do you remember in Shrek how he goes, ogres are like onions, they have layers, and the donkey says, well, what about a parfait? A parfait has layers too, <laughs> or a cake. But um, I think this question, what do I do with my doubts, how can I be sure, is uh, has a lot of layers to it. And we're going to try to peel away some of them. For instance, one of the questions we might ask with this is, what do you mean by doubts? Okay, what are you going to do with them? Or what do you need to know for sure before you will believe? Or what do you mean, what do you believe believing means? You know, those are some of the questions that come with it. And I'm not trying to add to your doubts today about it. um, But so there's a number of layers. And some of these layers deal with what's called epistemology. Have you ever heard that word before? It's how do we know what we know? And I think the one guy in the bumper video kind of brought that up. He goes, well, I'm not sure how we can be sure about anything. Did you notice that? And my question to him, it might be snarky, is how sure are you that you d- can't be sure? <laughs> Do you understand? And why I'm saying that is because you have to finally, in the end, believe in something. You ground your life. It might be for him that it's grounded in his rationality or his ability to... Be skeptical of things, but in the end, he has to believe something or someone, and he does. you got to place your life on something. You're resting it on someone, something. So what is it going to be? That's the question I think that we're doing today. So... Now, at the same time, I want to say, though, some of the questions about doubt and belief and what do we know and what don't we know has resulted as well from, I believe, poor and guilt-ridden teachings from within Christianity itself. Okay? Seriously. I mean, I have heard preachers that will do a strong number guilting people with you got to be sure you better believe and you better believe harder and you better believe more. And if you don't pray it out, you know, and worship it and, and, and are you sure? Are you sure? Do you know? Do you know? Can you be, you know? And it's almost like, the point becomes in those sermons and in that message and what I think we get is, oh, I'm supposed to look inside myself and I've got to figure out, do I have enough faith? And if I don't, do I? Do I? And what about my motivations? Oh, I don't know. And we just kind of go in this circle and we're kind of curved in on ourselves. And it's called subjectivism. And after a while, there's some good to that, but there's also a lot that isn't so good. And this is a snarky video. The Onion put out. Anybody heard of The Onion? And it's uh, and it's kind of like a takeoff on um, you know all those sports watches now from Nike, Pebble, whatever. And oh, and how it tells you what your health. It's like we're always taking our spiritual pulse as well. Well, this is talking about taking it to the extreme. And I think, bear with me. We'll tie this back in, but watch this video for just a second, okay?
0: Here at night we're all runners so we know that running is a painful tedious unfulfilling exercise <laughs> why do people run there's a lot of reasons I mean, maybe it's loneliness I mean, maybe we maybe our families maybe we're scared of death but knowing exactly why we run can tear apart it's Hard, fast. <laughs> users keep the device on their wrist at all times it not only records running times and distances it also analyzes all of the users social interactions and emotional patterns it then creates a profile that dredges the inspiring product <laughs> of your inside every run. Early users say they notice a big impact on their workouts. I started marathoning when I was 28. I thought it was time to get in shape, but then once I realized I was actually running from my meaningless job in ad sales, I started running a lot more. I like, mean, all the time. Oh, I love it. I can just look at the app and see that I'm running instead of dealing with my male body issues directly. It's so much easier than facing my products. And when you hook the device up to a pair of Bluetooth headphones, I feel
1: okay i uh, that I know that there you go, um please understand it's uh it, but I have a feeling sermons sometimes have pushed people to that as well, to the point where they actually are despairing over themselves and going like oh, I'm so full of and all this stuff, and I'm all of a mess and da, 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 da. And it's kind of like when you start preaching faith, 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 you got to have more faith. You better believe more. You better pray harder. You better do this and th- that. And we start looking, oh, I don't know. I don't have it in me. And we should be preaching Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You see, it's about the object of faith, it's not about faith itself. It's always about the object of faith. Uh, it's almost as if some people think we're going to have a trust-o-meter that is kind of like, oops, how much trust do I actually have? And if I don't have any trust, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble today. Or it's like you go to church and you're going to go through a TSA line where um, as you walk through, the greeters are there. And if, you know, if your doubts are in place, you got the baggage, you got all these struggles, you walk through and it's whoop, 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 you are disqualified from worship today. Do you get it? Faith is not faith in itself. I'm going to repeat that again. Faith is not faith in itself. Faith is not in how good you are at believing. Faith is in Christ, period. On our website, Thrive Community Church, what we believe, we say it is Christ alone. And we mean that. And it is by faith alone, but faith is trusting in Christ alone. It is by the promises of God alone. It is by grace alone. So I'm always looking outside of myself. And at least Thomas, in our lesson today, was not going to put up with anything about looking inside himself and trying to find it there. He was looking for an objective, risen, bodily Christ before he would believe. Okay? Good for him for doing that. Now, if I focus on faith and faith and faith and how much faith do I got, it can become into a work itself. Do you understand that? And all of a sudden, instead of believing in the God of faith, I believe in my faith more than in God. And that can become a problem. And do you believe hard enough? Have you believed enough? Jesus, how much faith do I? Jesus says, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Do you realize what he's saying with that? It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of the God that your faith is in. Boy, praise God for that. So don't look so much inside. I think taking your pulse once in a while, that's good. Those things can be good. But keep looking to Jesus. And when I look inside, I've got all sorts of gunk. I've got all sorts of issues. I've got mixed motives, deceptive justifications for why I am the way I am. I see struggles and desires that don't match what God wants. But when I look and I can see even a lack of faith, it was interesting. um, I've shared this a couple times. I've read Mother Teresa. You think... Wow, Mother Teresa had all of these memoirs or notes or letters she never want published because it showed in them, in this book, how she questioned her own faith and how strong her faith was. But it's not faith in itself. Faith is always in Christ, in God, outside of myself. And faith itself is a gift. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not a work, right? It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even the faith I have is a gift from God. It's a gift that is given me. Isn't that great? Secondly, I think another point about this is everybody has doubts everyone has doubts all the disciples not just thomas all the disciples doubted jesus nobody was sitting by the tomb waiting for the roll, the stone to roll away the angel to come out and say hey look he's gone nobody was there even the women who came early that morning were coming with embalming spices because guess what they expected a corpse and when the angel confronted them they were afraid and in some of the Um, gospels mark specifically they ran away afraid they didn't even know what to make of it and it was only after Jesus appeared to them that they figured it out at all and even the disciples all doubted and even after Jesus had appeared to them over the 40 days he remained here and there on earth before he went into heaven ascended into heaven In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, at the end, after all of this, this is what it says. Verses 16 to 17 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, you know, um, Judas wasn't around anymore, and to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even the eleven, seeing Jesus after the resurrection, after appearance, after appearance, it says, they doubted. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Doubt or ambiguity or what do you mean by doubt, I guess? But doubt is inevitable this side of heaven. And why I say that is Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Faith is not sight. Faith is not experience that all of a sudden you've got it all. Faith is not 100% philosophical absolute certitude. Faith is trust. And I dare say, watch out for the preachers or the teachers who will talk as if absolutely, positively, clearly. You have to have... and and. And trying to tell you that you cannot doubt anything, you cannot question anything, you cannot think through anything, don't ever, do you understand? They claim, people want that, they want that, oh just tell me what to believe, and it's got to be that way. And they want like philosophical, ideological certainty, but I'm not so sure that that is faith as we know it in the scriptures. They believe more in their system or their beliefs than in God. Trust always, Paul would say, is seeing, is seeing through that glass dimly. If you don't know it all, you're never going to know it all. Now, there are a lot of churches that may demand everybody be happy, think positive, win and success all the time. And if... For some reason, you're not positive and happy and successful and winning. Something must be wrong, and you better change it. Douglas John Hall said aptly, there's a strong pressure on individuals to seem content and in charge, even when they are decidedly not so. It is said that one in four persons in our comparatively affluent and healthy society is clinically depressed. But sometimes Christians say, oh... But we put the blinders onto seeing people who don't fit in and when and even guilt people who might be facing these things to say, you're depressed? Well, if you're depressed, something's wrong with you. And therefore, you better change. What? It's as if I've got to figure it out myself. But Christianity, I don't think, denies reality. I have met depressed Christians, and I have been a depressed Christian, okay? I've met people who have struggled with mental illness, who have struggled with addictions, with ego, and with selfishness, with anger, with fears, with all sorts of brokenness and culpabilities in their lives, with the nuances of how could I do this and still do, and all of that stuff. We are, you know, if we keep looking in on ourselves, it's kind of messy, How is that possible, that that's the way it is? Because this side of eternity, we are still what we say is sinners, broken people. Okay? Now, we strive to grow. We strive to keep going. We strive to do more. But the reality is that's where I'm at. I think Paul said it well in Philippians 3. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So it's the immature people, Paul is saying, who must have it all now. The good life is all now. It's the immature people that think, I'm going to get my act together totally now. And when they don't, oh. And Paul says it's the mature people who don't let the failures And the foibles and their own mixed motives hold them back. They're going to keep striving forward. They're going to keep looking towards the future, and they're going to keep working at it. It's not like we're just going to say, oh, well, that's the way I am. That's the way I'm going to be. But it's that we keep moving forward. That's maturity. Faith is always trust in that which cannot be Proven. I'll be the first to admit, belief in God cannot be proven. There is evidence for believing in God, and we've gone through that over this whole series. There are reasons to believe in God, and there are reasons, and some of the reasons that people have had that don't believe in God, we've kind of looked at as well. And we've gone through things like suffering, and we've looked at the injustices in this world, and all of that type of stuff. And we have seen there is evidence for not just the historical Jesus living, but his crucifixion and the empty tomb. So it's all there, but still even then, Faith cannot be proven, belief in God cannot be proven just like no one has ever proven God does not exist. you got to believe in something. blase Pascal he um, well, he was a Christian and a made a rational argument which is rather fascinating, okay he believed everyone has to wager their life one way or the other. You have to believe in something or someone. And he said, so whether you believe in God or disbelieve in God, you've got to make a bet because you can't prove one way or the other. And so he came up with a probability scenario and it looks kind of like this, okay? And he basically said this, if you believe in God, and you are right, someday you find out that you were right, then you have gained an infinite amount by trusting and believing in God. Now, if you believe in God in this life, live your life consistent with that, trust in what you cannot prove that God exists, and you find out someday he does not exist, you have lost But it's a finite 80, 90 years. You've done things that were sacrificial. You gave up certain stuff that you could have lived. It's just a minimal amount of stuff that you lose. Now, he says, the opposite. If you believe that there is no God and you wager or bet your life on that, and you find out someday that you were right, that there is no God, well, you've gained You've lived your 80, 90, whatever years as if there was no God and you were right about it, but you only gain a small amount of some of the things that you sacrificed in this life, a limited amount. But, he says, here's the problem. If you wager or bet your life that there is no God, and someday you find out, oops, there was, you've lost an infinite amount. So on a rational probability basis, he says, it's better to bet your life that God exists. You could only lose a little, but you can gain a lot. Whereas the other way, you only gain a little, and you could lose a lot. Okay. I don't know. You might go like, well, that's nice and rational, but that... John, you haven't really answered, what do I do with my doubts? Okay? I think here are some points. One, be honest. You know, we can talk, I think, here at Thrive. Everybody struggles with different things. Everybody has those things. We doubt ourselves, and rightly so. I doubt, do I really, you know, all of that type of stuff. And so we have questions that God has not and will not fully answer this side of eternity. But Don't allow your doubts, or that gap, if you want to say, or what you don't know, keep you from not believing. You can still believe and have doubts. Faith is trusting in God who is greater than your doubts. So be honest. Secondly, be open. God does answer the doubts. And here in the book of John with Thomas, Notice, Jesus doesn't do what we expect. He also comes to Thomas holistically. He comes to have a personal, holy encounter with Thomas. He doesn't give him facts. He doesn't lay out a rational argument like Blase Pascal did. He actually presents himself and says, here's my hands, here's my side. Go ahead. I'm the one with the scars for you. And, you know, if... um, This story is really surprising. I mean, we've heard it maybe before if you've been in the Christian church, and so you don't see what's surprising about it. But let's say if this was made up, if the resurrection did not happen, but the disciples decided to make up stories to sound like he did, Jesus would have acted a lot differently. This doesn't make sense. It would make a lot more sense in that story, if I was making it up, to have Jesus appear and be a little perturbed, if not a lot, at his disciples and have a little holy anger at them and look at them and say, excuse me, wake up and smell the resurrection. We've Hello, you abandoned me, you denied me, you ran away from me, and you're locked up in this room, you don't even believe in me. Are you kidding me? This is what I get for doing everything I've done? You can almost hear that, right? And when Thomas refuses to believe the other disciples... Jesus comes back. He could have also said, the doors are still locked. This is a week later. What are you doing in here? You should be out there. Where's your courage? What are you doing? Don't you have any faith? And Thomas, come on. You could almost see him come across that way because that's what we like to do is guilt people. To kind of push it on people. Jesus has no grudges. Jesus offers himself freely. Jesus holds no grudges. Jesus doesn't condemn them for their fears and their doubts. And fears they had, they thought, oh, what about those Jewish leaders? They could get after us. And doubts they expressed. And Jesus addresses them both. So Jesus is going to meet you in your doubts wherever you happen to be, it's not about you have to get somewhere first before Jesus is going to be here with you. He is right here this morning, and he is calling you to trust him despite any of the doubts that you may have and all the ambiguities and messiness of your life. Yeah, it's called and it's been called by some a leap of faith because there's that gap between what we absolutely know and trusting in Jesus. But That leap is not something you have to simply do. It's the fact that Jesus has risked everything for you to believe. And it says that no one says Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit even comes on your side of the equation to help you along. So be open. Open to the ambiguity of human life, but still being sure and certain about him. I am. I will not know everything. You know, why are things happening the way they are? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? I could try to live my life trying to find the answers first and then maybe believing, and you'll never believe anything except the fact that you can't find the answers. Or you just trust Him. Thirdly, be careful. And I put that careful, full of care, because... A lot of people, I think, are outside of the Christian church partly because they don't They've got a lot of questions, they've got a lot of doubts, they're not quite sure, they're struggling with things and they feel like they have to be perfect, they have to be there, they have to be together before they can get in. They know something is wrong but they don't know what. It's like I've said before and it's been said since I think St. Augustine, there's a God-sized hole in all of us and we try to fill it with fluff, with all sorts of stuff that just doesn't fit, it doesn't work and people know that but they, don't, they can't put a finger on it. So expect a lot of people with questions. Now a lot of people mask their questions and mask that feelings of loneliness and emptiness and stuff. We put on the appearance of certainty and fullness, and hey, I've got my act together. I'm having a good time and running from this to that to fill it, but deep down they are empty. The truth is, the American culture is shallow. Man, it's shallow. We are satisfied with jumping from one entertainment idea to the next craze, always trying to fill ourselves, and we think we're fooling um, others, but we aren't. We're focused on consuming just to try to get that quick fix, and yet we're filled with emptiness. Douglas John Hall, who I mentioned before, said this, The only Christians who can address the anxiety of meaninglessness and emptiness are those who allow themselves to know that they themselves, with a doubting and perhaps deeply repressed part of their own being, are also participants in the anxiety of the age. If a Christian refuses to know the doubter that he is in part, he should question the depth of his faith. And if he or she is a minister, the question will extend to the authenticity of his or her vocation. I, I could try to tell you and say, oh, I never doubt anything, but that would just be fake. Fake. But I can still believe even in the midst of my questions and doubts. Finally, be connected. You see... Um, We need a community of faith around us. We shared the creed before. That is not just so that we recited together, but it's an encouragement that we all believe together. That is, there are times when you struggle to believe. Other people can believe with you, for you, pray for you, encourage you. That's why one of the key elements to Thrive Community Church is our launching of more and more home huddles where we are going to be honest with each other, open to each other, encouraging each other, praying for each other, you know, allowing ourselves to be questioning each other. And it's not just that there's in the future. I, the great news is Vicki's doing one right now, right, Vicki? Tuesday nights, seven o'clock, and uh, it's a women's huddle. Um, starting a new series this week. Perfect time to join in. And let me tell you, It's a bunch of ladies, wonderful ladies, who also have their own, you know, struggles, right? We all have our doubts and struggles, but that's why we're there for each other. It's amazing to me when people go, well, I got my doubts. I'm not sure about anything, but I'm not going to get connected anywhere. And it's like, wait a minute. So you believe you're going to handle this on your own? I don't do that that well. I need other people. We are the body of Christ together, and that's what I'm calling you to home huddles will be great that way. I recall, um, I think 20 years ago, I met a Korean student who was attending uh, Stephen Point, Stevens Point, University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point, and she, um, at a conference, I was able to hear her speak. She spoke about how she came to faith, and um, she had come, um, and I forgot her name, that's sad. Um, I think it was Kyoko, but I'm not sure. And Kyoko came to the conference and she shared the story how she met with this campus minister at the University of Wisconsin there named Carl Selley and how she had many, many questions. And he met with her and patiently, over like two months, just answered all these questions, some of the questions we went through, the reason for God. At the end of it, she came to him and she was struggling and she was in tears and she goes, Carl, I just don't know. I just don't. I don't know how I can believe. I just. I. I just don't seem to be able to believe. I just don't know what to do, and I just can't. I, I. I understand. You told me about Jesus, and you told me this, and you told me this, and I understand the reasons for God, and I understand this and that. But how do I believe? I don't seem to. And, Carl just grabbed his wallet. Opened it up. Took out. I don't have one, but took out a twenty dollar bill. I've got a 10, and um, went to her and said, Kyoko, here. Sorry, Jacoby, I'm using you. Here's 10 bucks. I'm going to do that right now, okay? Here's 10 bucks. It's my gift to you. Take it. It's yours. And she looked at him and said, what? Uh, I I don't understand what... Carl, I'm talking about trying to believe in God, and I, can't, I, I don't understand. How do I believe in God? I'm just not sure, and how do I know I'm going to be sure? And he goes, Kyoko, I just gave you a gift, 10 bucks. Take it. It's yours. Faith, it's a gift. Take him. He's yours. And then she understood. Ah, he's a gift. I take him. He's mine and I'm his. In the end, it's not about our doubts. It's not about our questions. I'll never get all mine answered in this life. I don't need to. It's about Jesus. Take him. He's yours. Let's pray.